As was mentioned a moment ago in our introductory announcements, how thrilled we are to have, be able to come out this evening, our regular membership, and certainly our visitors alike, and for each and every one in the presence, I know at least we can hope that each will be encouraged and benefited and perhaps edified to walk more closely and nearly to the footsteps of our Savior. As noted in the bulletin, as well as in the brief statement a moment ago prior to the reading, we'll be looking tonight at one of the characters revealed to us in the nature of the Old Testament, none other than Haman, a central figure in the book of Esther. And it is to that book that I would encourage you to turn with me as we, we revisit some of the interesting episodes of the life of this man, who we might already notice was described as one who was the enemy, the adversary, and wicked. I suspect it already goes without saying that what we might learn from the life of this one will be things we ought not imitate rather than things that we ought to imitate. And tonight we would like, of course, to put a little bit more of a discussion behind that. What were some of the things in the life of Haman that could be very good roadblocks and road signs for me and you that we might turn aside from behaving in ways like he did? As we begin that kind of discussion, let me urge you to rehearse with me just a moment some of the highlights and some of the high features of the book as a whole. And following that, then we can look more closely at the features about the life of Haman and look more carefully at what things we should avoid that he seemed to pursue so directly. First of all, the book opens, and we find immediately that we are in the setting of the ancient Persian Empire. As such, we remember it was well following the Babylonian captivity, but as God's people were at this point in the juncture of their history, they were serving in Persia, and as such, the king's name was Ahasuerus, as it is spelled in the King James translation. As Ahasuerus was a rather mighty and powerful monarch, he threw a great feast, a party, if you will, and it lasted 180 days. Princes from all over the provinces of his region came, and it was a, an amazing sight to behold, apparently from the description, the things that took place. Following that, though, there was another seven-day period also of celebration given especially for those that were the inhabitants of the palace at Shushan, as well as the inhabitants of that city itself. As this party took place, the king at the end of that seven-day period had the desire and in fact gave the order for Vashti to come and to display her beauty before the princes that were so gathered. Vashti refused. She was unwilling to come and display in the way that Ahasuerus desired. And so chapter 1 closes with his cabinet members giving him some advice. Remove Vashti from the queenship and give it to someone better than she. One who will in fact do the bidding of the king. And with that, we come to chapter 2. In chapter 2, a rather intensive search was made to discover and find the replacement for Vashti. In fact, young ladies from all over the empire were brought to Shushan, and they would be interviewed by the king, and the one whom he would select would be Vashti's replacement. Amongst that number that was brought was a young lady whose name was Esther. She was a Jewess. That is to say, a person schooled and knowledgeable in the, in the law of Moses, for she was a descendant of that people of the Hebrews. As the selection time came, we will remember that Ahasuerus took a great liking to Esther 
among all the ladies gathered, he chose her to be his next queen, the one that would replace Vashti. And at that point, we're also introduced to two more things before the chapter closes. One was the name of Esther's first cousin. His name was Mordecai. He, it also turns out, will play a significant role in the remainder of the story. But the second thing to notice, there was a conspiracy plot. In many ways, the world doesn't change a lot, does it? Just as there were those interested in committing murder then, so too it remains so today. But there were two individuals named Bigthan and Tirish who desired to assassinate the king. Mordecai became aware of this plot, made note of it to Esther, who in turn informed the king, and the king's life was saved. Turns out that also will be significant later in the record because Esther certified those events in Mordecai's name, not her own. In chapter 3, we are introduced to an interesting set of affairs related to the very nature of how high and how elevated Haman had become. The king had given orders, in fact, to elevate Haman to a high position. As a part of that elevation, he himself had known and come to appreciate that others would bow before him during the course of his motion or movement throughout the palace and the city. Thus, as Haman would walk by, others would bow in his presence. But there was one person who would not so bow. Mordecai, I refused to do so. And it turns out that that, in fact, rested upon the mind of Haman. He was beside himself in fury because this single lone man would not bow in his presence. As chapter 3 moves onward, Haman, in fact, was so furious and so angry that he concocted a plan whereby not only Mordecai, but every person of his nationality would be exterminated. Might we pause to notice there was genocide just as much back then as you and I have heard of it in the Middle Eastern part of our world today. Haman's desire was to wipe out every Jew on the face of the earth. The plan, in fact, he had in many ways was an ingenious one. He, in fact, spoke to the king and received the approval of the king, in fact, to put to death all individuals of that variety and of that, and of that nationality. The king, in fact, gave his approval. And so when the lot was cast on the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew was to be slaughtered. Every one of them was to be killed. At that point, we come to chapter 4. In chapter 4, we learn that Mordecai, of course, receives news of this decree. And as he received news of it, he was overwhelmed with grief, for it meant that he and all of his people would be put to death. We can imagine that he put on sackcloth, greatly troubled in mind. Esther, at that point, had not learned yet of the decree. When she recognized, though, and came to learn of Mordecai's behavior, she sent word and asked him what was it that was so troubling to him. He, at that point, relayed to her of the news of this decree. And not only did he relate to her the news, he, in fact, urged her, you are in a position that you, too, will not escape. Don't think that just because you are a resident of the palace that you shall escape death. And so Mordecai urged her, go in before the king. It may be that you can be an agency whereby we, our people, can be saved. The law of that land, however, was this. One was not allowed to go in before the king unless the king requested your presence. 
to go into the king uninvited may well have meant the sentence of death. Esther prepared herself and desired a fast among the servants and the friends of Mordecai. And the time came that she, in courage and bravery, marched in before the king. And sure enough, just as surely as Mordecai had said, perhaps thou art coming to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther 4.14 So in chapter 5, verse 1, in before the king she goes. And she says, if I die, I die. She had a degree of courage and bravery that she desired to save her people, if so it were possible. She went into the king and he dipped the golden scepter to her and asked her request. She initially asked, in fact, for a banquet to be thrown that, in fact, Haman as well as the king and she would enjoy a meal. As that chapter rolled onward, that banquet, the first banquet, took place. As it did, Haman was so wonderfully proud, for he now had that for which he desired. He, and only he, apart from the king and queen, enjoyed that meal. As he left that meal, however, he saw Mordecai yet again. And Mordecai refused to bow. And though the happiness that he had known not a few moments earlier now was turned into frustration, and it was turned into disappointment. He went to his house and told his wife in great fury about how he was beside himself that Mordecai would rebel against the nature of bowing in his presence. His wife suggested, hang him. With the prestige and power that you now have, you beseech the king to grant you permission to hang him. As chapter 6 opens, that's where we find the next episode in this interesting plot. So early the next morning, Haman's on his way to see the king and to, in fact, get permission to hang Mordecai. Little did he know that the night before, the king had had a very restless night. He hadn't slept very well, and in fact, the text says that he was unable to sleep, at least for a while. In that period of sleeplessness, he called for the chronicles of the kingdom to be brought. And when they were brought, interestingly and also providentially enough, that which was read in his presence was the very activity in which Mordecai had saved the king's life by the observation of those two conspirators that were about to take his life, Bigthan and Tirish in chapter 2. At that point, the king asked, What has been done to honor Mordecai for this? Those who were nearby said, Nothing. He has not been so honored. And so it was that at that point, Haman was standing outside the door, and the king asked Haman, Haman, what ought to be done for the person in whom the king delights to honor? Haman, in thinking the king was talking about him, made the statement that he ought to be paraded on the king's horse through town so that all can appreciate what he has done and how great he is in the sight of the king. Ahasuerus said, so be it. You go and you, in fact, lead that horse on which Mordecai sits through town and provide him the honor that I proclaim upon him. At this point, though the text in fact describes the lowly countenance of Haman, that was not at all what he had in mind. He was the one in fact leading about the horse on which Mordecai was riding. When that parade was finished, he went back to his house utterly frustrated. That is not at all what he had in mind. At that point, even his wife had the idea if the king is against you, you won't long live. As we come to the next chapter, there was another banquet that was held. 
Esther at the previous one had invited both Haman and the king to come to yet one more banquet. And on this occasion, the king now said, Esther, what is your request? Even if it extends to half the kingdom, it will be yours. It's at this point that the text that Lucas read earlier is what she stated. She made it known to the king, There is a man who not only desires my death, but the death of all people who are of my nationality. At this point, the king said, What? Who is it that desires your life? Who is it that would in fact so approach my queen in this fashion? Esther said, It's that wicked enemy, Haman. The very man standing here in our presence. He is the one who has made a death sentence upon me. At this point, the countenance of the king was very different toward Haman. In fact, he walked out into the garden, and while he was away, Haman begged the queen because he now could see what was perhaps about to happen. When the king returned and saw him begging the queen the way that he was, he gave the sentence, hang him. On the very gallows that he had prepared the night before for, in fact, Mordecai, was the very gallows on which he himself met his death the next morning. As chapters 8, 9, and 10 close the book, we come again to a very happy setting. With Haman now dead, we find that that 12th month, 13th day passed, and the king had given the opportunity to the people of the Jews to defend themselves. They were able not merely to be exterminated, but to take arms and lawfully defend themselves, and that they did. Surviving, and in fact, to this day, there is a feast observed by Orthodox Jews that celebrate the events unfolded in the book of Esther. You see, they were a people on the brink of extermination, a people on the brink of genocide, and yet, by the providential hand of God through Esther, they were saved. They were, in fact, allowed to not only remain in their place, but even Mordecai came to occupy Haman's place as it would seem, one of the high officials in the Persian government. To say all of that has given us a broad overview of the book, and now for a few lessons especially focused on this man named Haman. Perhaps our first lesson would be this one. Beginning as early as chapter 3, when we are first introduced to him, we learn that Haman loved the praise of men. Though all would bow before him, except except Mordecai, that was not good enough. He, in fact, we find was an individual who not only in that chapter, but later in chapter 6, was one who desired greatly the attention and praise of others. He was unsatisfied without it. To that extent, that leads us perhaps to beg the following set of questions for ourselves. Are you and I of a disposition like that, such that we must have the complementary features and, in fact, the praise that others might heap upon us? Let's be sure to appreciate, it is not to say that we can't be thankful when others recognize our capability in a way. That's not what we're discussing here. Do you and I have to have that praise of others? Do we specifically do things in the name of religion or otherwise just so that others will notice and just so that they will compliment us for it? If so, we are very much like Haman and we are very much to be pitied. In Matthew 6, beginning in verse 1, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed that very point when in fact he listed three activities, prayer, prayer, 
fasting, and giving. And in all three of them, he said, Take heed that you do not your alms before men, that others may see. Matthew 6, verse 1. For he said, If you do, your reward is what you're now getting. He went on to say in terms of fasting and in terms of prayer, that we should in fact seek not to do our alms or not to pray solely that others will hear and appreciate the eloquent words or the timely activities. Our mindset should be to serve the Father and to do that in a way that in fact is not solely for the purpose of gleaning the attention of others. That fatal mistake, of course, ultimately led in part to Haman's downfall, didn't it? We are told in chapter 3 that though others bowed before him, the only thing that bothered him was that Mordecai would not. He had to have the praise of everyone, including Mordecai. But maybe a second lesson that's also a rather stern warning. In addition to the first, we learn pretty quickly in chapter 3 that Haman was a vengeful man. Again, when he saw that Mordecai refused to bow in his presence... He concocted a plan that not only would Mordecai suffer, it expressly says that once he learned the nationality of which Mordecai was, he wanted to exterminate all of them. Here was a person who really wanted to take vengeance. He wanted to wipe out the entire nationality of Mordecai's people. Vengefulness. The Bible warns us, doesn't it, about having a vengeful attitude and a vengeful disposition. Might we remember Paul's statement to the Romans in Romans 12, beginning in verse 18. He first said, As much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. But he followed that with these words. He affirmed the following, Do not be vengeful, or avenge not yourselves, my brothers. And he closed that verse by saying, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Vengeance is not given to you and me. God will take care of any vengeance that is deserving and worthy on the day of judgment. Our disposition should be one that is not vengeful. We don't seek to get even. We rather, according to the teaching of, the Je of Jesus himself, would be those far more likely to turn the other cheek far more likely to, in fact, if we're asked to walk a mile, we walk two. And if a man asks for our cloak, we give him our coat also. We are far more to be like that than we are to take vengeance upon those who've acted unwisely toward us. That kind of statement is a very far-removed issue compared to Haman, isn't it? But in the third place, in addition to those two, Haman was completely, it seems, unconcerned with truth. Revisit that episode when he appeared before the king. On that occasion, when he made notice of the people of Mordecai, he said, this people are diverse. And furthermore, they keep not your laws, king. So the Jews, at least per the description of Haman, were an unruly people, a people who were lawbreakers, a people who, in fact, had little, if any, respect for the Persian Empire's regulations and ordinances, it would not seem that that was an apt description of that people. For later in the book, in chapters 8 and 9, that's not the way they behaved. Could it be that, in fact, Haman exaggerated? He, in fact, stretched the truth so that he could gain the king's approval to kill this group of people? 
It's rather an amazing thing to consider. Could he have stretched the truth when in fact the truth isn't stretchable? Could he have lied? Could he have misrepresented them in the effort to deceive the king? It would strongly seem that that's precisely what he chose to do. To the end that he could eliminate this people. What does that say about such attempts today? To deceive another. To lie. We're reminded more than once, aren't we, in the New Testament, such as John 8, verse 44, where in fact the Lord Himself affirmed, Ye are of your father the devil. And as that verse closes, He then made this apt statement. He was a liar from the beginning, and He's still the father of those who tell such. And didn't Revelation 21 and 22 remind us that concerning those that will enter heaven, those that love and make a lie will not be among that number. Revelation 22.15 and in Revelation 21.8 it is there said that those who lie will be amongst those cataloged in the same way as being outside that glorious and eternal city. God is a respecter of truth, isn't He? And He wishes us as those that would be His people to uphold the same and to not be those given to deception, to beguiling, to those that would be given to lying. Notice that Haman had no problem with it, but we should learn better than he. Maybe a fourth lesson. In addition to these three, Haman exerted and showed no care in regard to others. This is, of course, rather related to the previous one. But here he was, a person who once he found out about the nature of the nationality of Mordecai, was insistent upon their removal completely. I can't help but be reminded of some of what we've seen in the, in the last 15 to 20 years or so in Eastern Europe or in fact in the Middle Eastern part of our world where there was genocide in Serbia and there was also the same in that region surrounding even Saddam Hussein's regime in that part of the world. You see here we see it deeply seated even in the mind of Haman. Ultimately what it was that he had against the entirety of that people, the book of Esther does not reveal. Could it be that his hatred resulted from a simple observation of what it was in the mindset of this one man Mordecai? We don't know. But however we do know this, he was urgent upon their removal. And in fact, not only that, the time came he wanted Haman hanged and seemed anxious and happy to make sure it took place. He went to the palace early the next morning, anxious to get the king's official decree that he could put Haman, put, put Mordecai to death. Here was a man who had a rather hard heart and very anxious to accomplish what he desired regardless what it may have meant for anybody else. Perhaps that leads us to ask, does Miss Justice and... Does other unfortunate matters, when it occurs to others, does it bother us? Is it such that that causes us a degree of anxiousness too as we ponder the state of affairs of these innocent individuals, wherever they may be? It certainly wasn't so in Haman's life, was it? Jesus, in fact, urged us to appreciate in Matthew 7, verse 12, the character of the golden rule, therefore... Do good even as much as what you would have others doing to you. 
That kind of language helps us see again not to be vengeful for certain, but rather to hopefully see a betterness and welfare of others whom we in even an indirect way might be able to assist. That comment perhaps leads us to yet another attribute of Haman. We see within him a strong notice of impatience. One who was so exceedingly hasty. In fact, even as we have noted in our studies in recent Sunday mornings in regard to Joseph, patience is so often a very beautiful virtue as is presented in the sacred scriptures, isn't it? One who is able to wait upon the Lord. Psalm 27 verse 14. Where in fact twice in that verse we're admonished, Wait on the Lord, I say. Wait on the Lord. And understand that when we realize our daily walk of life, that patience in our part will be a greatly helpful thing. It will aid us to keep our temper in check. It will aid us to not speak too hastily when a situation arises. For isn't it still true, according to Proverbs, that a soft answer turneth away wrath? But when we speak roughly and harshly, due to the fact we are not as patient as we could be, we often will only make a matter worse. We will speak in a way that agitates the emotions and feelings of others and really only exacerbate the difficulty. Might we see that patience is truly a wonderful thing. In Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 5, we're admonished, Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience. The degree of controlling oneself to the extent of keeping one's emotions before they go beyond what would be appropriate. Did not Paul still say, Be angry and sin not? Ephesians 4.26 The beautiful thing about that is, God gave us the temperament to realize there are emotions that deal with life. We're not to be stone-cold individuals with no feelings, but we are to sufficiently control ourselves so that we don't lapse into sin when situations arise. Patience will be a very critical element in helping to make sure that happens. As often as patience is described positively in the New Testament, we can see here that even in the life of Haman, a lack of it was certainly one of the things that led to his downfall. Consider again the providential way that chapter 6 unfolded. What if he had been just slightly more patient and had not come to the palace so early the next morning? Then things could have been exceedingly different for him. He might not have been the one to have to lead Mordecai through the city. We can realize God's providential hand in all of that and we can see the impatience of Haman was certainly a part that allowed all of it to come to pass. In addition to that lesson, might we perhaps see yet another one appreciated in a type of attitude we sometimes see in children, but that if we aren't careful can also arise even in your life and in mine. Haman pouted. On that occasion when he learned that he was the one to, in fact, promote and to lead to the elevation of Mordecai, I'd like you to notice the language and how it's described. His countenance and his reaction. It's found in chapter number 6, verse number 12. After leading and parading Mordecai 
throughout the city, this is what it says. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate. But Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. He was ashamed to show his face, it would seem. He went back to his house to pout. And when he went back there, he engaged in conversation with his wife. And it was on that occasion that things began to take a rather strong and dramatic turn for the worse. He pouted. When he didn't get his way, he pouted. Do you and I sometimes see that in the lives of even adults? When they don't get their way, when things don't go like they'd planned, when things don't work out the way they had intended, they pout. They perhaps refuse to share any fellowship. They go to their house and simply remain there by themselves. They pout. There's no room in the life of a Christian for a powder. There isn't opportunity or shouldn't be opportunity for that. There's too much good work to be done to invest time in pouting. Pouting doesn't accomplish anything. It's a pity party. It's an opportunity, in fact, to, inf to bring the attention to oneself because I didn't get my way. Well, we understand in humility that often the times will arise that we each won't get our way. But yet, in the community of believers and in the community of a family, there should be a sufficient encouragement and a sufficient realization that there is no opportunity really for pouting. That accomplishes nothing productive. Rather, what ought to take place is a realization that, yes, it didn't work out the way I'd intended. Let's go to plan B and move on. Let's, in fact, proceed in a different path that should still accomplish the necessary work. Quite often we see in the life of our Lord and His teaching and others about the pursuit of a plan B to in fact accomplish the work of God, the other things needed, but to do so in a way that might not have been the way the initial plan was. How often in Paul's life did things not work out the way he might have wanted? In Acts the 17th chapter, he was run out of town in Thessalonica. Here was a city in which he had begun to have labors for the Lord, and yet these unbelieving Jews stirred up the people and he had to be, in fact, be taken by night out of that city for the preservation of his life. Is that what Paul would have desired? Did it work out the way he wanted? Almost certainly it didn't, but did it redound unto the glory of God? He went on to Berea, and of that people, he said, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with the readiness of mine and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Paul didn't give up, and in fact, he pity upon himself. Woe is me because of what happened at Thessalonica. And it was to that same city he later would write two epistles, the first and second Thessalonian letters. In fact, praising them for their faith that was exceeding great. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 3. That speaks a great deal about how Paul was not one who pouted. May you and I also not be like Haman and not be like those who are so given to an atmosphere and an attitude of pouting. I listed a text there from the 25th chapter of Matthew. On that occasion when Jesus gave a picture of the judgment and he pronounced a blessing upon those on that occasion on his right hand, he said, Enter ye into the joys of your Father, for I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. 
I was in prison and you came to me. I was sick and you visited me. Here were people who were doing something. And for that, heaven was their eternal home. On the other hand, to those on the left-hand side, he pronounced, of course, eternal ruin and woe upon them. And they said, when did we ever see thee in these states? For he had simply told them, I was sick and you never came to me. I was hungry, you never fed me. I was thirsty, you never gave me drink. Might we pause at that point and ask, were those people too busy pouting and so didn't get the work done that needed to be done? There isn't, you see, a necessary thing in terms of pouting, is it, in the New Testament? There's productive work to be done. Perhaps also, the seventh and final lesson concerning Haman tonight. Haman died a dishonorable death. We each realize that if if the Lord delays His coming, we're each marching toward a certain appointment with death. In fact, the Hebrew writer says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. We also notice that Haman too died. He however died a rather miserable, dishonorable death, didn't he? The king said, Hang him, because he is in fact as the adversary and as the enemy, attempted to besmirch my queen and in fact to kill her people. That sufficiently agitated the king that that led to Haman's death and what a dishonorable death it was. The very next chapter, even his sons were killed. Here was a man whose family was decimated because of his foolishness. The dishonor of his death lives today in infamy as an eternal example of how you and I ought not to live. Could it be fair to say that certainly the most honorable way to die is to die as a Christian? To die having lived for the cause and majesty of the Lord? To die, in fact, in a way not perhaps unlike Stephen, or at least in a similar fashion? Here was a man who, in fact, was stoned to death. But as he died, the words of the Lord was on his lips. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, Acts 7 verse 59. And as we come to the revelation in Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Not works of infamy, but works of productivity, and works in which others have been led to see the glory of God in you and in me. That's an honorable kind of death. And there isn't a gospel preacher who minds preaching the funeral of a person who has gone to be with the Lord, having lived his or her life in open favor and open defense of the truth of God. But quite frankly, it's a challenging thing when one's asked to preach the funeral of one who is not a member of the body of Christ. For you know right then and there that there is no hope. Per the statements of the Word of God, there's no hope. That's the kind of death that's also dishonorable from the standpoint of the day of judgment, isn't it? For that person has left this life unprepared, not ready to meet the greatest appointment of all time for that person. There are many appointments in this life. We may have an appointment with a dentist or an appointment with a doctor or an appointment with perhaps some other attorney or a lawyer, but they pale in comparison to the appointment with the ruler of all time the very God of heaven. Haman is a man tonight that we've learned in seven ways not to imitate. Seven things about him that we should try to avoid.
Perhaps we can summarize the entirety of the lesson then in these few words. We have seen the value of studying a, a Bible character. Tonight it has been Haman. We could, of course, have cast a spotlight on Mordecai or perhaps Esther more clearly. But we've looked instead at Haman to learn some things not to imitate about him. And among them we have seen these, that he was, of course, in the very words of Esther, that enemy and that adversary, the one opposed to the very nature of the will of God. And the seven lessons that we saw, Haman loved the praise of men. In addition to that, Haman was a vengeful man, unconcerned with truth. He had little, if any, care at all for other individuals. And what's more, in the final ones, he was an impatient man who pouted, and finally who died a dishonorable death. None of those things have to be the case for us. We can so guard our thinking, and so, in fact, bring our lives in such a fashion that none of those need be the case. And we will be a far happier person if they are not. Tonight, what about your life and the case of it and its disposition? And what about mine? Do any of these things describe us? If so, there is the opportunity to work day by day with earnestness and reliance upon the power of God to help remove that thing that's bad and replace it with something that's good. That's one of the great joys of Christianity, isn't it? To ever see a brightness on the horizon that will in fact be a tremendous blessing to our life as we mature in the faith and look to be able to accomplish greater things for the cause of our Savior. Are you a Christian tonight? That's the first step to ensuring that you'll die an honorable death from the perspective of eternity. If not a Christian tonight, you need to become one and this is the only way that can be done. You must hear the good news of the gospel. Believe Jesus to be precisely and exactly the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life as per the commandment of Acts 2.38. Furthermore, confess Jesus verbally, audibly, in the hearing of others, following the pattern of Acts 8, verse 37. And then be baptized, not as an outward show of an inward grace. Baptism is for the remission of sins. Acts 22, 16. Acts 2, again, verse 38. If we could be of assistance to accomplish that tonight, what an enjoyable thing for you, for both the present time and for all eternity. If you have become a Christian, but you have not lived as faithfully as you should, maybe some of the attributes of Haman have come to be a part of your life. You can turn things around tonight. We could pray for your forgiveness. God has promised upon your repentance and confession to forgive those things. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in either of these ways, Brother Harold has chosen a hymn of encouragement, and this would be a convenient, opportune time. And we would urge you to let us know if we could be of assistance while together we stand and while we sing.